0: This is Living Forever, Not an Option, a podcast brought to you by Care Dimensions, a provider of hospice, palliative care, and support services in Massachusetts. Your hosts are Lynn Skarmis and Mary Crow. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Living Forever Not an Option with your hosts, Lynn and Mary. Now, as you can see or hear, Um, Lynn is actually not with with us today she's fine but she wasn't able to be a part of this with us Uh, but I, I am thrilled to say that we have a special guest on the on the show today and our guest is Judy Johansson who is the clinical research ambassador at mass Massachusetts Alzheimer's disease research center Massachusetts General Hospital and Judy I am so thrilled to have you on the show today Thanks, Mary. I'm happy to be here. So I just want to read, you know, Judy's here, uh, and I'm going to read a a brief bio to you, uh, because today we're going to talk about a very important topic, and it's on younger onset Alzheimer's disease. And uh, so Judy Johansson is the mother to her two grown married children, nana to four adored grandchildren, and wife and soulmate to her late husband, Steve, who carried the chains of younger onset Alzheimer's for nearly seven years. While each role is cherished, she considers having been the steward of her husband's care to be one of her most life-defining at the moment. With love as their compass, they chose to defy the gravity of Steve's diagnosis and fly in the face of hopefulness while acknowledging the reality of the parameters that accompany this disease. With the guidance from the Alzheimer's Association and Steve's remarkable neurologists, they became advocates and used their voices to bring awareness to the challenges surrounding a dementia diagnosis. They, inven- they invested their energy in research and hopes of leading towards a future without Alzheimer's and other dementias. Steve's final gift to science was his brain. Judy now works for the Massachusetts Alzheimer's Disease Research Center this has become a personal and professional passion of hers. She shares their experiences with the hope of helping others. Thank you so much. It's just, uh, I'll tell you, it's, it's so powerful, Judy. I, it's amazing uh, what you've been through and also what you, what you have done with this, this, this very challenging and painful experience. Thank you, Mary. Uh, yeah, tell us, tell more well, was, about, yeah, go just... ahead. Talk to about your. tell us about yourself.
1: I like to say, uh, to start off, that you know Steve left his brain to Mass General and his heart to me, and I feel very, very fortunate and blessed to be able to continue to keep those two things together in my work. So yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about us. Uh, Steve and I were married for 37 years. We felt we hit the lottery of love with each other. We had a really, really good life. I mean, we just... Friends would joke us about us and say, you know, we enjoyed spending more time together as a couple than most people ordinarily do. I even think during this pandemic, like, we would have been thrilled to be together day in and day out. But in uh, May 5th, 2011, Steve returned um, early from work, from his job as a special project manager at Northeastern University. And he said he had received a poor performance review. and he was really devastated and he turned and he said I think I have Alzheimer's and his mother had been diagnosed at age 77 with Alzheimer's a couple of years prior to that and this was literally Steve's worst fear was getting Alzheimer's because we could see the manifestations of this disease we went through five months of testing which ultimately led to a diagnosis of younger onset Alzheimer's one month prior to his 59th birthday And I like to call it younger onset Alzheimer's as opposed to early onset, because younger onset or early onset signifies that the diagnosis arrived before the age of 65. But I think it's just very, you know, it's much
0: clearer language to just say uh, younger onset Alzheimer's. I think it's important to talk to the audience about that distinction because you often hear people... um, just mistaking terminology, whether it's they, I don't have Alzheimer's, I don't have, I I don't have dementia, I have Alzheimer's, I don't have Alzheimer's, I have dementia, or the younger or the early terminology. I think there's a lot of confusion around that. So I'm glad that you were able to really kind of define that for people.
1: I agree. And, you know, um, younger onset presents a whole different set of challenges with it. Uh, I, you know, even later onset does also, but specifically, this is what I, choose to talk about because this is how we were affected when steve was diagnosed he stated immediately and we had a good cry for ourselves and he said i'm sad that i won't be around to watch our grandchildren grow up and play baseball and then he shifted gears as he could always do and with such grace and he said okay we we have two choices we can be happy or we can be sad and uh, we have tremendous love and that alone is reason to smile every day um we realized that our time together would no longer be measured in lengthy years so we tried to um, adjust the sail and uh, catch the wind of the idea that experiences would be what we would try to um to garner and to take in to fill our lives rather with years that we rather than fill them with years we would fill them with experiences Mm -hmm. um we had discussed him continuing working a little bit with his neurologist and, um, and Northeastern University was so gracious and they offered to get him an assistant or whatever he needed to extend his working days. But his neurologist said to us that stress can exasperate the disease and accelerate it. And Steve was already feeling stress during that summer while he was being diagnosed, he'd wake up some mornings and say, I can't go to work today and of course, We didn't know his diagnosis yet. So I'd be like, why can't you go to work? I don't understand. You look fine. You know, so it was, you know, again, right before his 59th birthday was uh, the end of his working days.
0: I think that's an important point that you bring up, though, right there, too, in terms of that, how stress can exacerbate. Because a lot of times, what do we do, you know, we when we have a loved one, or, or we're working with people with Alzheimer's or other dementias, we're inundating them with all this. And we're thinking that we're doing a good thing by stimulating their brain way too much. It's total overload. So I think that's a very important point you're bringing up there.
1: Yeah, by all of a sudden sticking Sudoku puzzles in front of them and things that right. just helped them really realize how, you know, what their challenges
0: are. Exactly. Um, so. Yeah. So go on, Judy.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Um, during, um, so, you know, not working was a bit of a challenge for him. You know, your day is different. We had a routine where he would get up in the morning, have his coffee, he'd give me a kiss goodbye, and he'd go off to work. I'd get up and start my day at a family daycare in our home at the time. So all of a sudden he was home and in this staycare. So we even made the best of that. He started working with me. He adored kids. I mean, we originally met working at a boys and girls club. So it wasn't a surprise that we both would love working with the children. And our grandsons were part of the daycare and every child in town then called him Gramps. But it was the first fiscal hit him not being able to work at the age of 59. I mean, we considered he would have at least 10 more years of work in him. So
0: imagine 10 years of lost income. No, yeah, I mean, that's pretty powerful too. And I think that, again, one of those, there's such unique uh, challenges to having a loved one with Alzheimer's and dementia, but particularly for younger uh, people with younger onset, but the, the economic or the financial component is really a huge thing.
1: It's really huge and, you know, ironically, and these these are part of the things that we help advocate for with public policy with the Alzheimer's Association, but because I'm younger, I am not entitled to Steve's Social Security uh, death benefit check. I mean, I got the initial one little one that you get, but, um, but like other spouses receive their spouse's Social Security, I'm not entitled to that until I'm 60.
0: Oh, wow. So,
1: yeah. Um, which That's- is still a couple of years. So after, you know, he worked with me for a couple of years and we had a great time. Well, we had a great time. And then the confusion of kids and parents in and out of the house and him saying one day, what if I ever just, you know, tripped on a child or something? Uh, he said, I don't think I can do this anymore. So I stopped working. And, uh, you know, that was a, a second big fiscal hit. But, um, you know, I realized thought, we'll, we'll figure this out. You know, and I could have gone and gotten a job somewhere else. And put him in a day program, but those lines, that line this neurologist said to me about stress. I mean, if he had to go to a day program early on, he definitely would have felt stressed by that and it would have accelerated his disease. And what I was trying to do was preserve him as long as I could and um, preserve him feeling great about himself. During the years, uh, we sought help from the Alzheimer's Association. I like to say we were full mission recipients, care, cause and cure. We advocated for more funding for research and better education surrounding Alzheimer's and other dementia. We advocated for improved care post-diagnosis for the importance of people being told of their diagnosis because people are not always informed of their diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia. We joined support groups. We tried to acknowledge our emotions along the way. We knew that this was a terminal diagnosis, and while we didn't want to think about that every single day, we would say almost that it was a gift that we knew.
0: You know, I think that's important too, Judy, because I think sometimes people think, "Oh, you know, why would you want to know?" It's, I think it is very validating for people to know, and you got to know what's going on so you can have forge your path. And if you don't have that information and you can't understand more about that disease process and which direction you're going to go and how to navigate that, I think it would be just more of a challenge. You know, Mary, even thing, people
1: uh, say things like, you know, he looks fine and he seems fine. And here's this man who knows that he's living with a terminal diagnosis. Right. And while it feels like, you know, it's great to know that you're looking good and presenting well. It's also nice to feel um, empathy from people around you to understand that you're going through a very, very profound journey.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know. And understanding why is so it being able to share with people that we that matter to us and, and all about, you know, why why are you acting differently? Why are there maybe behaviors or other things going on? And I, I, I have always seen this as such a challenge with Alzheimer's and other dementias in general, where you know, you have that, that a person does look very much the same it's unlike other terminal diseases for, you know, they, they look the same for a long time. So it almost disguises what the challenges and the struggles that people are going through. Uh, And I think it causes extra problems.
1: Yeah, I agree. Definitely. And, you know, Steve was very, very kind human and he would never have anything to say, you know, somebody might spill something and you say, Oh, what are you doing? Or joke by the Steve would never do that. He'd grab a rag and he'd wipe it up. Yeah. And I found that with Alzheimer's, you know, as those things come up and I would try to deal with things the way he would, realize in general in life, we need to be kinder to everybody. You it's know not it's not it's not a funny thing to make fun of someone when they spill a drink or, you know, right. or or trip. And so it, in a way Alzheimer's has taught us my family and I to be more in tune to people and just respond with kindness rather than judgment.
0: Yeah. yeah, we have no idea, do we, what people are going through and what could be underlying of that situation. And people are just, I think, quick to say things. I had a uh, a wife of a uh, an individual who he had behaviors and all, and the wife actually carried a cot in her in her purse. And it said, please be kind. So when she was out in a restaurant or somewhere and people were rolling their eyes, it would say, please be kind and gentle with my husband. He has Alzheimer's. Yeah. I, you know, it, I guess it really, boy, it, you know, it reminds people that you just can't make assumptions. Exactly. I used to carry
1: a card like that. The Alzheimer's Association has cards. And when we would travel through the airport, when we went through TSA, I would hand that card. And I actually would even hand a card that says, My husband has Alzheimer's and he's had a knee replacement, but we need to stay together as we go through security. And um, one time, this was the last time I decided to go through the airport without a wheelchair. We got in there and uh, I unloaded everything of mine onto the belt and they said, oh, he's got a knee, he's got to go down to that other, you know, I'm going through and he walked on over to me afterwards without his shoes or without his belt or without Uh his wallet, you know, just... uh, So, you know, it is great to try to make people um, aware. And then the other thing I've heard people say that, you know, I marched right up to that server because I, I have also had servers say to me, Oh, he can make up his own mind. Why don't you let him, you know, say what he wants. And I've had people say, I marched right up to that server and said my husband had Alzheimer's. I kind of think, well, you know, I don't know what their day is like. And, you know, I can mention it kindly, uh, but you know, just like I say, kindness is key. And uh, yeah. with dementia, I always knew how I wanted him treated. And um, why should we expect to have our loved ones treated a certain way that if we don't choose to treat others that same way? Yeah,
0: yeah it's, a true, it's a true story.
1: Yeah, we, through the years, we attended memory cafes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, with younger onset, I remember sitting there on my Friday morning at 10 o'clock thinking, okay, so this is our new Friday night date. I go to a memory cafe where mostly, everybody's over the age of 80 and we're the only two young people. And then I saw Steve get up. This was actually Beth Salzberg, her memory cafe in Waltham, um, the Jewish family center. And she just does a tremendous job. And I saw Steve get up and begin getting involved in the activity they were doing, which happened to be a dancing thing that day. And I thought, what does it matter what my preconceived notions are of what is okay? What works for us is what works for us. Yeah. So we really found solace in that. And from that, we were involved in a, a music program that stemmed off of Alive Inside where we were provided an iPod that they downloaded two week. We garnered um, songs from our kids from friends that Steve went to college with and said, what would be songs that would really strike Steve? And we had about 200 songs in this. Oh, wow. And they gave you a Y set of earplugs so that I could listen and him. So these became new dates for us too, yeah. as sitting listening to music together. Steve had decided early on that he wanted to be involved in research and in particular to donate his brain. You know, his parents, his mother didn't get involved in anything like that. And we could see, and we felt worried that this could be something that runs in the family, perhaps. You know, he wanted to solve it, you know, and he, he knew he wouldn't be here to teach those boys how to climb mountains or sail his little catamaran, but um, they could learn from him that when he took his last breath, that his life still mattered and that his message still resonated far beyond what we consider to be the end of life.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, we had film crews in our house. We were part of a PBS documentary called The Crowd in the Cloud, where um, it was uh, part of a citizen science project of trying to find stalls in videos of mouse brains. We were part of a social engagement project out of BU. We were part of a memory study at Mass General and imaging sites. So we, we, you know, we just were like, we love that, quote by Charles Stray that says something, you know, I'll probably get it wrong, but it's, you don't have a right to the hand of cards you expected to be dealt, but you have an
0: obligation
1: to play the hell out of the ones you're holding. And Mm -hmm.
0: that's what we just tried to do. Yeah, yeah, well said. It's, you don't, I I think that's the other piece to this disease process is just, yeah, it's trying to have some level of control over something that you feel totally helpless. And um, I, you know, I, I think that we we try so desperately to control our surroundings and everything that's going on, and and this just is a reminder how we can't do that. It
1: was really helpful to me one time. My son said to me because you know when I didn't want to share things that might be sad or like you know when I realized Steve couldn't read anymore or things yeah. like that, and and uh, he'd say, well, mom, why didn't you tell me that? And I said, well, I just I didn't want you to be sad about it. He said. You can control a lot and you do control a lot, but you cannot control how people will respond to this. So you right. need to stop wasting your energy on that.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned that grief too. I, I just, you know, I, I, we haven't talked a lot about grief yet, but there's so, so many levels to this. It's like I'm peeling an onion, isn't it? It's just, my gosh, it, it's losing the person while they're still living a part of them. It's a different person in a way, while they're acting and all. And then like, again, just watching that he couldn't, the losses, he couldn't read, he couldn't go back to work, He could, and that affects both of you, all of you.
1: Out of respect to him, Mary, I never felt like I was losing him while he was alive. I felt Uh like he was trapped within the heavy, heavy chains of this disease. Yeah. But, and I knew he was losing abilities. I never felt I was losing him, and I felt he knew me to the very,
0: very end. And it's, it was it's a just, nice way of looking at it. It's so, it's so hard within that grief to, and, and trying to maintain those things, those feelings. Yes,
1: you grieve losses, you grieve, yeah. you know, but we, we grieve. I had someone say to me one time whose husband had just been diagnosed and she said, how, I mean, how can you love him through all these changes? It's like, it's like a child. And I said, well, for goodness sake, we give birth to little beings that don't walk or talk And they end up, you know, growing up to knowing as much or more than we did. And we love them through all the stages and through all their renaissances. So why couldn't I love him through all of his evolving stages? I I did. I did. And I, you know, I was, it's hard to say I loved him even more, but I I felt so much more empathy for him as I, I tried to put myself, I had gone to a dementia simulator, which was Very, very helpful in understanding what things might feel like for him. And it aided me in trying to set up social settings that were more successful for him.
0: I think that's a good suggestion for people. I I think if we can enhance our our sensitivity awareness, when this, and because, you know, it it is hard, because like we said earlier, that person can look so much the same. People can have lucid moments. So we think that, that it's within their control sometimes of what they're doing, how they're behaving, which is not. It's a part of the disease process. And I also just want to say too, and what you brought up is, you know, these are amazing, remarkable adults who we just adore and and just love so deeply. And I, so I I always not chastise or correct people when they compare people in these amazing adults who have been really hit with Alzheimer's or other dementia. I always say that, look, these are amazing adults that Again, have been dealt a raw hand here and they're dealing with this, but I don't like when we compare them to children because when we compare them to children, we treat them accordingly And, and they're not. These are amazing adults who are dealing with a major disease process. And I think, again, we need to treat them in a highly dignified way because that's one of those unique things, as I'm sure you experience, is that, boy, the dignity component, boy, it it goes after it, doesn't it? And this disease, it it tries desperately. And I think that's going to be one of our missions not to let it uh, strip people of that.
1: I, I wrote a little something down about that about loss of dignity isn't really the loss of people when when people talk about you know oh, they've lost their dignity it's not their dignity that's lost it's the loss of the dignity of the lens we, tend, we choose to look through so a dignified person will adjust their lens and provide that you know and sometimes we need to help people with that and help them understand but no my husband he didn't lose his dignity we
0: we needed to adjust yeah and i think um, one of our educational pieces is is helping people words are sharp and i feel like we have to help people with the terminology with the words like you say how to be more compassionate and loving and uh, and tend to those things
1: and just trying to work with things i remember So one year on my birthday, we were all at our family beach house and they brought out a cake and this, he was maybe four years into his diagnosis or three years into his diagnosis. So I still felt, you know, a lot was working really great, but they brought out the cake for me and he turned to me and he said, whose birthday is it? And I said, it's mine. And he was mortified. Yeah. Yeah. So the next year, my daughter went and got a card with him and I put because the first thing he would do in the morning was pick up his glasses and put them on so I put a little note on the nightstand today is Judy's birthday so when he picked up his glasses he picked up the note and he said oh it's your birthday happy birthday you know
0: yeah
1: and you know so you learn to adjust things like that Um, he you know in the late stages when you know, the symptoms of this disease would cause hallucinations, which could make him feel that he was under attack. I remember one night he said to me, I'm going to die in 15 minutes and nobody even cares. And I said, if you're going to die in 15 minutes, I am mixing us both a Manhattan and we are going to sit and enjoy it because that, for us, that was relaxation. <laughs> uh-huh. At that point, I used to keep black cherry juice in the house and I would shake it up and put it in a Manhattan glass. And, uh-huh. and that original feeling was gone wow. when it got to the point where he needed to attend a day program a couple mornings a week, just so I could catch up around the house and breathe a little bit. I told him he was going to volunteer. I asked his neurologist to write a prescription for him. And, and I said, you know, you can't work anymore, which is unfortunate, but you're great with people. And if you could go and just help these older people. And he said to my sister, you know, and he would balk it sometimes. He'd be like, I don't want to go to i like, I didn't really want you to go either, but I have the signature from Dr. Tadeza right here in the car that, you know, it's like a prescription, like your medicine, it's part of your therapy. He said to my sister one day, he said, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot there, but if I can make people smile, then I feel like I've done an okay job. Wow, so great. just to constantly, rather than make him feel like he was losing, 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 what I could put back into his hands yeah. is what I always hoped. And, and believe me, I talk
0: about the successful outcomes <laughs> <laughs> the moments. I don't talk about the other ones, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's helpful for people, though, because again, these strategies that you're talking about are so important because this is, like I said, although unlike other diseases and certainly, again, bringing that added uniqueness of the younger onset, there's so many challenges that you're faced with as the individual, but also as the caregiver or the family member and certainly as a spouse. And you so, really have
1: to remember within your relationship that words don't matter if Steve had been upset in the past, pre his illness, it was pretty likely that I had done something silly that, cause he didn't get angry easily, you know? So trying to adjust with that, that when I could see he was agitated, not to feel like, oh, it's something I did wrong or something, you know, sure. wake us, waking up in the morning one time and him saying, are we, are we going to school today? I said, no, you know, we're not going to school. He said, are we going to work? I said, no, we're not going to work. And he said, don't we need money for this house? And I said, oh, Steve, you work so hard and you set us up that we never have to worry about money again in our lives. Not at all, the truth. But, I mean, he worked hard, but, you know. uh, But he... Felt so empowered in that moment. I said, "The way you have taken care of me, I don't have to worry about anything." You know, and we used to say too, we didn't like Alzheimer's, but we sure loved lingering over a cup of coffee together. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, and embrace that.
0: I tell you, the time goes by so fast, and I there's so much I want to talk to you about here. But you know, we have a few minutes left. What else do you want to share? What's important from your perspective, Judy, that you want the the audience to understand about younger onset, your experience, caregivers, whatever it is? Again, I think it's life isn't over the day
1: you get a terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That if you can get a diagnosis early enough on, you can plan. Plan while the person still has some input. Uh, Let them feel the empowerment of that. Put together a caregiving team or people that you know that you can count on no matter what. As a caregiver, join a support group. I remember thinking, well, why do I need to go to a support group? No one needs to hear what I'm going through and you know, I don't really know how I'm gonna benefit from hearing what they're going through. And then being there and realizing that, no, when you hear other people's strategies and hear that they're having success or that they are having pitfalls, and you can share a lot of those same things that you feel more human and more uh, validated. And to remember as a caregiver that you don't have to be lying on the floor bleeding, uh, needing to be taken out of the house in an ambulance before you can say, I, I could use a little help. It's not an easy thing to ask for help. I remember towards the end when my mother said to me, so the community's going to start bringing you guys dinners every night. And I said, oh, mom, I, you know, I don't want that. We're not there that yet. And she said, well, things have changed and this is not a decision you even have to make because it's going to be a cooler on your front porch and there's just going to be a dinner in there every night. You know, so knowing to have the grace at times to say, okay, and to allow. Yeah. Because like I want say wanted, it is hard
0: to ask for help. Isn't it? But when you saying yes and allowing it gets a little easier as you go, doesn't it?
1: Well, you get to a point where you can't, I, I remember towards the end, uh, walking him upstairs to go to bed at night. And um, I made a decision. I thought, oh, I cannot, because I used to literally have to be behind him and put my hand under each foot so he would know to raise his foot. And I remember thinking, oh, I should probably be in front of him because if he goes backwards, we're both going down. Oh, yeah. And I said that to one of my close you know, inner circle. And that person said, it's time to make your living room into a bedroom. And I said, no, 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 no. But they just came over and did it.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. And yeah. we
1: never went upstairs again. So letting go yeah. a little bit. And in a way, it's it allows you to still have control
0: over what you're doing with your loved one. Sure. And you know? people want to be, you know, it's hard because we want to, as caregivers, it's hard to ask for help, but allowing people to be a part of the process too, people want to, they love, you know, they love you. They want to be able to help. They don't know what to do. They don't.
1: And they don't. And sometimes people think they know better than you. And um, I used to say to people at times, please just trust me. If I say that you cannot come in the house at five o'clock at night, trust me on that. It's for Steve. It's not because I'm being an oddball. It's to make life comfortable for Steve. And that was my most important thing. There was nothing, nothing more important to me than making things as comfortable for Steve as I could. Because that's
0: how he was to me my whole life. Yeah. Well, you certainly uh, had just, uh, again, what, what it sounds like a wonderful um, love story, actually, that you have.
1: Very, very blessed. I, I don't know if we have time for me to read a few please, words. Please do. This was the kind of man that my husband was. He had written this back in the 80s or something, just used to closet writer. He says, it seems a bit naive and silly to hope for a world full of love, but what else would be as fantastic and beautiful as a world of love. When we ask, who do you love? Why do we not answer everyone? You must be willing to try. If we want a good dream to strive for, all of us together, let us make an effort unmatched in history. Let us love one more person and one more and one more. Love more, please. And this was his definition of love. To embrace life with joy and wonder, to live each moment with faith and peace.
0: Wow. That's beautiful. I gotta tell you, those are absolutely words to live by. And again, you carry his legacy on. And he's forever, forever here. And yeah. and still teaching and still donating and, and giving things to, to those around him.
1: Thank you, Mary. That's um it's a really comforting thought to think that.
0: Because oh, Judy, um, I'll that's tell why you, I share I, Well, you have done amazing. I mean, and again, I want to thank you for the contributions you continue to make with the the challenges of being, and what you do, your stewardship in terms of carrying on um, and and being a loved one with with a loved one with Alzheimer's disease. I feel especially great. I'm grateful anyhow to you, but especially grateful because I feel like, again, you're making a difference in all of our lives so i want to thank you so much for that and i want to thank you so much for coming on the show today it it really means a lot and i hope you'll join us at another time as well because we have a lot more to talk about
1: i'd be happy to Mary, and i thank you for bringing this topic to the forefront and making it an important one to be
0: heard thank you so much take good care you too and thank you all for for joining us on Living Forever, Not an Option. And we'll look forward to you joining us on future shows. Thanks for listening to Living Forever, Not an Option with Lynn Skarmis and Mary Crow. To learn more about Care Dimensions, please visit our website at www.caredimensions.org or check out our podcast website at www.caredimensions.org backslash podcast. We would love to hear from you with questions or comments. Please feel free to email us at podcast at caredimensions.org. And of course, you can always call our office at any time. The number is 888-283-1722.